Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Walter Poppy, your host of the Go to Market podcast, where we break down go to market strategies and tactics with founders, revenue operators, and investors to get actual insights to make your go to market plans faster and more predictable. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff. All right, Wes, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, super excited to have you on the show. Uh, I think you've been doing some really super interesting things. So really excited to dive into a lot of different areas. Uh, but first and foremost, uh, one thing I've noticed is that you have a great ability to communicate ideas. Where does that come from? Yeah, I guess I never really thought I was like great at communicating ideas. Um, but you're right, like there is like this whole product like growth movement and having like a big impact on a, thousands of people figuring out about this whole thing. Um, you got to have it. And I think it's just like really honing in and repeating the same thing. <laughs> it sounds awful. Like, <laughs> you know, when you say the same thing, like a hundred or a thousand times, it's like what I always look for at the end is just like, did they get it? Did, were they yeah. excited about it? Was I excited about it? Um, was there a story there that's like easy to relate? And so I tend to use like analogies myself a lot when I'm talking. And like, I think there's a lot of hooks and ways you can make someone remember something or get a better takeaway from a lens they already understand to bridge the gap between the new and the old. And I think that's one thing that without knowing it, I'm, I've just acquired the skill. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. So, okay. So let's, let's dive into uh, an example to make it relevant for everybody. So you, you talk about a bowling alley strategy when you talk about product-led growth. Yep. Take us through kind of like the idea of like the analogy, the metaphor, uh, how did you first come up with it? And then the story framework that you, you're kind of thinking about in the back end of your mind as you're refining the process. Yeah, so that bowling alley framework uh, took a while to click because I was writing the book on product-led growth and like I got to chapter 13 and <laughs> if you've gone through the book, it's the longest chapter by a mile. And so I was just thinking about this like whole principle of like onboarding and how you really can crack it and how you could communicate it easier because I looked at it from a product-led growth perspective and it's onboarding is really at the crux of it. Like if you don't get it, someone's going to try your product and then they're not going to be able to get the value. They have no reason to come back. It's just not going to work for you. So you mm -hmm. need to crack the code on onboarding. And so I was like, this is really important for a ton of people to um, figure out, but it's at the end of it, it's, it's not really that complicated. Uh, so I tried to think about, okay, what's a simpler way to communicate this? And I I was bowling actually, <laughs> surprise, surprise. And okay. like, you know, part of this communicating thing is like, I think I look for like parallels between mm -hmm. different things and bowling was one of them. And so I started thinking, you know, what? like you go to bowling, let's say it's your first time. What do you want? Like you probably want to roll that ball down, knock down as many pins as possible. And for you, that's, that's awesome because you can show to your friends yeah. like, Hey, I'm winning. I'm beating you. You can get that competitive spirit going. It's fun. Um, but like, sadly, what happens to most first time people is they roll the ball and it goes in the gutter and they're like, all their friends are laughing at them. They're having fun. And then right. you're just there being like, Oh no, like something's wrong with me. <laughs> this game's hard. <laughs> it takes like a little while to acquire the skill. And so in bowling, I don't know if you know this, but like, uh, this is embedded in Texas, but like there is, they invented this new way where it's like, hey, like we realized the bowling association was like, there's not a lot of new people coming in to play bowling. It's a lot of like these old timers and experts who are like going in and enjoying the game, but there's a big gap between like the average bowler and the expert. And we want to make sure like we can grow this total addressable market uh, so we stay in business. And so they actually came up with bumpers, which I think is an amazing way because it just like, totally blew up their total addressable market because now a ton of people could play mm -hmm. bowling, roll that ball down the bowling alley and strike out, have fun, see the outcome that they actually wanted from the very beginning in a much yeah. easier way. And yeah. so I started to think about like from a product perspective, how does that even apply? Like, well, uh, someone in their first time with your products, they want to strike out. 
they want to access the value prop that you had on your website as soon as possible. But mm -hmm. often, just like in bowling, uh, in SaaS at least, 40 to 60% of people end up as gutter balls. And they just go to your product, they don't get it, or they get stuck in some other process, or they get distracted by something else, they just leave. Mm -hmm. And so it's really up to us to put up the bumpers in our SaaS product. And one of them can be like your product bumper, which is like, hey, someone is getting into the product for the first time. What do we show them? Like, maybe you could ask them, like, what are you hoping to accomplish here? And like, if you have three products uh, under your hood, it's like, okay, ask them like, hey, you trying to send invoices? You trying to track your finances or something and just guide them to that part of the product that they care about. And so you can get really smart about like how you use those product bumpers to ultimately get them to the strike faster. That's what it's about. It's not just about like, let's show them around. Uh, just like when someone comes to your house for food or something, like it's okay to show them around, but like they're there for food. If you don't show the food, <laughs> eventually like, you're going to leave. Or at least I right, would. Right, right. I yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, hey, like, wait, you, you said there was going to be food here. There's not food yeah, here. You what got are we me doing? excited. <laughs> over. Um, yes. And so the other part of the bumper is like, just like in bowling, there should be too. Like for your product, yeah. there's the product bumper, but then there's the conversational bumper. And so what you got to look at is, you know what? Like um, wherever people are dropping off uh, in the droves is you just trying to find like, okay, like there's this impact moment. A lot of people are lost here. Um, could we send them an email? Could we help them accelerate uh, and get mm -hmm. them back onto the straight line and strike out? And so I'll give you an example. Like if you're using Google Analytics, you sign up but you don't put the script or the JavaScript on your website, you're not gonna be able to track anything. You're not gonna mm -hmm. be able to really understand you know, what's going on on my website. Are, are users there? Are users actually using the website? Until you do that step. So you could just send them a simple like email with that code that they could forward to their developer or they could just upload to their own site or give them instructions on how to do it. And you can just be more helpful so that they can ultimately get more value from your product. So yeah, it's at the end of it, it's kind of interesting to see like, wow, there's a lot of parallels between bowling and like product onboarding. But um, I think it just simplifies the way you see it because at the reality, there's kind of like really three big things going on. Okay. All right, now we're gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a pin note on those those the, the, the three big things, and I, I think you you talked about it, but to go back to so if you were to give advice on how to communicate a very complicated idea so people can understand it, is what are parallels in real world that everybody can understand, and then is it just a questioning of yourself like how does this relate, or like what would be the advice you would give to somebody? Hey, I want to get better at communicating ideas. How would you? What would be the advice that you would give them? Yeah, I think you have to understand something like really, really well. Um, because <laughs> I find like whenever I'm writing down something and it seems complicated, oftentimes it's because I just don't understand it that well. Like for instance, mm -hmm. I got to uh, halfway through my book and I was in like the pricing area of it and talking about value metrics for premium models, which is really important. And I kept like looking at it, <laughs> reading my own stuff. And I was just like, this like is not making too much sense. And so I kind of had to take the step back and like, um, I, it felt hard because like I had this goal. I was like, I'm going to write 3000 words every week or something like that. And I was like, oh, it feels like I'm not making progress, but I just went back to the research phase again and again mm -hmm. until I could really synthesize. And I think that's actually it. Um, that's one of my unique abilities. I actually did that activity. <laughs> now that I think of it is I can synthesize a lot of information from different areas and then just provide like the high level overview of it. Uh, it's really good. So just keep going back and researching it and keep reading different parts of information into one space. Do you do that through writing? It sounds like that's kind of the way that you synthesize all the information. Yeah, absolutely. Like writing is that. A beautiful gift and there is i forget who exactly it was who mentioned it but like right the whole process of writing a book like before you even hit publish or anything else like that um the act of doing that yourself is should be like more valuable enough of just the fact that you synthesize all that information and learned uh, accordingly of how to actually like break down that topic into really minute details 
No, that's really good. So before we uh, go to those, those three big areas, uh, let's give context to, to the listener. Uh, if you haven't known what product-led growth is, how would you define it? Yeah, so product-led growth is really when you're using your product as the main vehicle to acquire, activate, and even retain users. And so um, it's really like when you think about uh, from an acquisition perspective, like you're, you're giving away a good chunk of your product, let's say your freemium, like that is your customer acquisition model. Mm -hmm. You can get more people in the door from a sales perspective and activation perspective. You can start looking at, you know, what are people doing in the product? Uh, when do they get value from the product? And when that often happens, that's the moment when they're deciding in the back of their heads, like, hey, did this product help me? Uh, if I want continued access to this, I, I should pay for it. And it's like this natural mm -hmm. relationship where you're like, I trust them. They have shown me value already. Mm -hmm. They've de-risked this for me. And so it's the next logical step. And so um, yeah, there's tons of different applications, but it really just comes down to using your product as the main vehicle. Okay. And then you mentioned like, it just comes down to three things. What are those three things? Yeah. So there's the value, which is the strike. That's like, okay, okay why someone signs up for your product in the first place. And then the two other things are like, what gets in the way? Like there's the friction. That's probably mm -hmm. one of the, the biggest things uh, that goes on. And then beyond that, uh, it's really just like the motivation. And so if you look at, this is like <laughs> interesting, all of the books you'll ever find on habits, uh, we're talking like near EL, even with like product habits, mm -hmm. um, atomic habits with like yeah. Jason here, everything yeah. references the same research, including my book. We're not breaking new ground. We're just repackaging it in different ways. And all of it comes from BJ Fogg, who built the behavior model, which basically uh, proclaims there's like three things going on if you want to get a successful behavior. There's uh, you need a good amount of motivation, which is mm -hmm. true. Like you want to do anything, you got to be motivated to go in that direction. You need an ability to do it. And so it's like, okay, that's, that's super important. And then the other thing is you need triggers to be able to do that. You need prompts. And so uh, you just need to figure out what is the right mix of that. Like, for instance, ability. When I talk about bumpers, that's just a different lens. It's saying, hey, if I can make this easier for you, your ability is higher. And so you're going to be able to do that faster and better. Motivation. Like, for instance, your copy. Could it be more convincing, compelling? I'm sure everyone could say yes. And mm -hmm. so, yes, we can motivate people to a certain degree if they want to. Um, then the other thing, like the conversation bumper, that's really just triggers. So how could you uh, really re-energize these people if they are falling off, get them back on the bandwagon and experience the target behavior? That's the goal and the strike at the end of the day. Wow, that's really interesting. So do those three things come into play both at from the uh, customer-like acquisition part where they're trying out the product to the point of sale and then also from like on the other side where they're retaining or potentially creating new generation for you. Is, is that in all three of those phases? Yeah. And like some of the things like ability should become easier. Like if it's, you become a customer and you're using it day in, day out, uh, it's going to become so easy, second nature for you to use that product. So in theory, mm -hmm. it should become much easier for you to go ahead and do that target behavior again and again and again. Um, but you might just get less motivated or something like that. Uh, so there's different ways where that can backfire and you do need to maintain like, okay, um, where are they falling off? It's usually a factor of one of those and triggers, interestingly enough, there's two kinds. There's like your external triggers, which are like emails, SMS. Um, those are like effective at the beginning of the journey when they are like pre-customer prospects, um, but they actually fall off a cliff after a certain point. Just think mm -hmm. of like, why does Facebook not message you every day anymore to like <laughs> log in? It's like, right. they already know your hooks or something like that. So it's like, mm -hmm. it's become an internal trigger. And so that's really the goal of any successful product is you want it to become an internal trigger where whenever they think, oh, I need to get data on my company, like I get a data box. Oh, I need to do this. I need to check up on my friends. I go to Messenger or something like that. So that's where we all want to head. Um, but there's this interesting bridge between like when you can use internal triggers and when you can use external triggers. 
Okay. So in the background in my mind, when you're talking about these like different triggers and different motivations and it, is there a, I, I guess like different levers, like a waterfall or how are you thinking about this, the, the, the journey of the customer as they're going through this? Like, what are the, the key, are there certain key points? I guess that's the question. Are there key points that you're kind of thinking about a model in your head that they're trying to accomplish to help them realize their value? Yeah. And I think we can give like another example on this too, that everyone will be thinking about. Uh, let's do like going to the gym example. Like let's pretend it's January. Okay. <laughs> so like January 1st. Yeah. Like marketing uh, at that point to get you in the funnel is like, here's their dream body. Like here's lose this amount of weight or something like that. So they all focus on like the end goal. But then that's good at getting you in. And same thing when it comes to your product, like you want to like really promote that end goal. But then you kind of have to change your messaging from just like, here's the end goal to here's like after the gym, like how does it feel? Like get them thinking about, hey, it actually feels great. Like, I, you know, whenever I sweat, I feel like I have more energy. I feel better. And like, you're trying to really light the fire of the internal trigger so that when they're mm. thinking about this, they're like, you know what? Like, it's not about losing all that weight anyways. It's about feeling good in your body. And if that is working out once a week for me, like that's great. If it's working out seven times a week, that's fine too. And it's just finding mm. your specific, uh, like, you know, track of like how mm. you approach it. So yeah, there is a, a interesting transition of how you can uh, really re-engage and re-motivate people as they go on for that longer journey. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. So before we uh, start diving in deeper to like each of these areas within product like growth, like we're going to talk about, uh, what is your definition for go-to-market strategy? Yeah. So I think go-to-market strategy is really just the way and method you are approaching and going and tackling the market. And I think there's really important like precursor to that is, is really understanding the game you're playing and mm -hmm. how you are going to play it. Like, are you going to play like the king or the queen in the game? And there's different yeah. choices and sacrifices of like, are you going to be the dominant player? Are you going to be the disruptive player? Are you going to be, um, you know, differentiated? Each of them has potentially a different go-to-market strategy and different way you approach it. So um, it's understanding the main game you're playing and using the right tools to your advantage. So one of those tools would definitely be product-led growth, right? A bottoms sure. up strategy, which is turned into a, a, a big conversation uh, in the in the tech space. Where do you think the product-led growth strategy plays best in? Like what would be kind of what you're seeing, the ACV, the industry, any like patterns you're seeing where, hey, like this is a really strong way to, to go to market. Yeah, so typically like you're gonna find it in the SMB and mid-market. Uh, area. It has like had a huge impact on enterprises as well. But right now we're seeing just like a lot of product-led companies operating in these SMB mid-market sections that a lot of these enterprise players have just written off. They're like, hey, we can't even operate there. Like our customer acquisition costs are just way too high. And yet these product-led companies are coming in there super profitable <laughs> because they're right. uh, way less hand-holding as far as like getting these users on board and getting them to value. And what's happening is these product-led companies that are going in where these enterprises can't operate is they're now going up market. And those enterprise companies are saying, oh my goodness, this is scary because like they can operate much more effectively than we can. Mm -hmm. We got to do something to change. So I think that's really um, concerning for some of those like currently sales-led companies. They got to start thinking about those uh, companies that are taking the bottom of their market and working mm -hmm. their way up. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, getting that long tail and and going upstream. Now, when they're going upstream, do they in, introduce a sales team? Are they just continue to um, differentiate their product so they can be more enterprise ready? What what are you seeing there? Yeah. So typically, once they get that model working for, mm -hmm. let's say, the SMB, then they're thinking, okay, like what's the next level up? How do we introduce this? Yeah, there is typically more of like a hybrid approach. So they are introducing more of a sales team. Some people don't even call them sales folks. They're more just like there to support these users and help them become successful, whether it's in a trial or a freemium model, and then help them with the upgrade experience. They do need to build an internal business case. And so, yeah, that's, that's very common where you're going to see these hybrid approaches where they're leveraging a product-led model to get uh, you know, the majority of the market figuring out about them, using their tool, gaining their attention. And then what they're doing is understanding those users better and breaking yeah. into the accounts, 
um, that show the most promise for them. And they're typically doing that with uh, looking at a product qualified lead model or something like that, uh, which is much different than your typical marketing qualified lead. Yeah. So let's, let's dive into that. What is the kind of key difference of a product lead, uh, product led lead, led lead? I'm going to try that again. What is a product led lead versus a marketing qualified lead? Like, what are the big differences? Yeah. So I call it a product qualified lead, but a product oh, led product lead. qualified lead. My bad. Okay. So what, so this is why, so this is why you, uh, <laughs> You don't record it on video because this would be really awkward at this point. So what is the difference between a product qualified lead versus a marketing qualified lead? Yeah, good question. Um, so like a marketing qualified lead um, or marketing led lead, if you want. Ooh. <laughs> not whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. This is, this is why you cut things out because eventually you just kind of like get to a point where you're like, okay, no, 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 no. All right, I'm going to cut this part out. So we can try it again. It's like the best part about these type of things. It's like, you know, you're going to fuck it up. So it's cool. Um, all right. So I'll ask the question again. So what is the difference between a product qualified lead versus a marketing qualified lead? Yes. Uh, so product qualified lead is actually very similar to your typical marketing qualified lead, but there's one mm -hmm. key distinction. So you still look at like the firmographic, the demographic information of everyone who's signing up. That's still really important to identify like who's a good account or not. Um, but what you're also tacking on to that is a understanding of what the person's doing in the product. And more mm -hmm. specifically, um, who is accessing the value of that product. And what's great about monitoring that is when someone like checks the box on like the demographic, the firmographic, and they've got value from the product, um, that's actually a really hot lead. And there's someone who is very likely to become a paying customer. So um, in the early days of Drift, like they would define their product qualified lead metric as someone who has used their product, which is a chatbot, and had a hundred conversations on their website. And so by that point, when someone has used their tool, had a hundred conversations with their own prospects, um, they pretty much get the value of Drift. And so what they started noticing is, okay, okay, once someone hits that product by lead metric uh, and has had all those conversations and they're a good fit, that close rate for that sales rep was 20 to 30%. So it's just fantastic. And so they yeah. really focused on like, how could we get more of these product quality leads? Yeah. And what's great about it from a business perspective is it aligns everyone, not just the product team, but also the marketing team and the sales team at producing more people who are successful at using the product because you're monitoring like who's actually getting value from this product and is mm -hmm. a really great forcing function to get everyone bought in to that fact that uh, if you want to be successful at a product-led business, you need to prioritize user success. No, absolutely. Uh, so I, I've had uh, Mark Robage of Stage 2 Cap on this uh, on the show, and he talks about using leading indicators when you're kind of figuring out product market fit, which in your case, hey, you have the product. Once you use this thing and it aligns the company, marketing, sales, customer success, product and engineering, it instantly helps you understand like what your North star is. So, uh, a very, I'm hearing that more and more of this is how we need to be able to understand what's best for the customer and driving that value. When you're thinking about from the customer success and retaining the customer, how does product led, uh, growth help that, uh, part of the, of the equation? Yeah, it's huge. And so when you're thinking about maybe the adoption component of it for customer success, they might actually be focusing a lot less on that because the mm -hmm. product's doing a ton of the heavy lifting of getting the person to first value. But when it comes to understanding the accounts and really helping them break into the rest of the accounts, um, that's really where there's a huge opportunity. Just think of Slack, for instance, like it might start in the development team at the company and then they get 20 people on that team on that for the development. And then if it's like a big Fortune 500 company, let's say there's a ton of potential of where that product could go. It could be the entire company. It could just be mm -hmm. uh, the entire department initially. And so customer success could then look at that account and say, you know what, they're averaging about, you know, adding two, three people every single day. What if we just approached the head of the department and ask them if they like to roll this out. So they can kind of accelerate uh, how people are adopting this, bringing um, you know, the head of the department up to speed on like, hey, you're already having so much value here. 
here's what you're missing out on if you don't upgrade. Uh, but we're going to leave this decision up to you uh, to make the best one. And so they can provide a convincing, compelling business case as far as that goes. So in a lot of cases, customer success um, can really just be focused on land and expand uh, mm -hmm. as far as that goes. But they're a lot less focused on just like, okay, let's go through our four booked onboarding calls of like how we set you up with our product and walk you through everything, uh, which is very common for a lot of sales led right. companies. They have a heavy, heavy customer success component as far as that goes. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense, especially if you're saying that, hey, we can help build that business case and help grow with you. Uh, absolutely. It makes complete sense. So if you were to look at all the different organizations that you've worked with, that you've advised, what are three common mistakes that people make when they're trying to transition into or trying to go into a product-led growth model? Yeah, so one of the, the first ones that uh, comes to mind is definitely getting more people bought in to the vision. And it's not like one of those things, like let's say growth hacking, like, all right, I'm just gonna run a bunch of experiments over here and like get some results. It's really, it takes a full village to make this work as far as your business goes. And so you need to make sure like your executive team is on board around this and really uh, hug those people that are most likely to shoot this down, like bring them in to the talks around like why you think this is a good idea. Go through actually the first part of the book, like the first seven chapters of Product by Growth. At the end of every chapter, what I tried to do is just leave breadcrumbs of questions of what you could go through in some of these meetings with your executive team to get them bought into it, get them thinking about, you know, what game are they playing? Is it a differentiated play? Is it a dominant play? Because each of them has different choices and sacrifices as well. Like if you're going to be dominant, like you probably need something more touchless because you can't afford to have a super high customer acquisition cost if you're going to hold that position. And so there's really interesting conversations to be had if you go through that. Um, but the main thing is just getting those people on board um, because then the next thing is you really need to start building uh, some sort of team or even if it's just one person at the beginning, some sort of momentum around this. And that could be in the form of, you know, a weekly meeting where you're just reviewing like how users are going through your websites to really build that empathy. But um, I think the second big mistake is just a misunderstanding of you know, how does sales fit into this picture? Because if you are sales led already and you have a big sales team, there's gonna be a ton of resistance. And I think some people try and approach it where they say, you know what? We're gonna disrupt the cash cow product right now and just introduce this. And <laughs> to no surprise on my end, it's like, it didn't work. <laughs> because they immediately got like defensive, like, hey, your free trials, like cannibalizing all our demo requests. <laughs> off. We just wanna print money here. And like, of course, like these executives, like, yes, we want money uh, because we wanna run a business here. And so there's more graceful ways to approach it. And I would actually recommend starting smaller. And really just thinking about like, what is the, the really, uh, the smallest thing we could do to move this forward. And so I've seen some companies with like a free trial launch, like they just start showing it to like less than 1% of their website traffic. And that might only mean like they're getting like 10 people signing up for the free trial every single day, but they just put one person on it. And instead of having a fully built out free trial, it's just them. They, they go through, they book a meeting with this person, they walk them through the product, they try and get them up to speed on how to use it and really help them out with that. And what you're gonna figure out as you do that is there's a lot of things that you probably have to automate and a lot of assumptions you made around, you know, what does someone have to do to get up to speed and get up to value? And so it really um, can be more of a, a gradual process but I see a lot of people thinking like, okay, there's just two big things we got to do. We got to get the premium free trial going and boom, right. we're going to be successful on this product, that journey. Uh, but I would actually recommend moving a bit slower on that end, really testing it out, really understanding your user um, and the core problem. And then the third kind of main problem all comes down to just understanding your value. And so whenever someone signs up for your product, there's something going on in their head where they had a problem before that. And they might've been solving this problem in some different way uh, 
which could not even be like a competitor, it could be just be some other way that they're approaching it, but they might've been searching for a problem that they find your product and they have that intention. They have that intent of what they want to solve. And I think a lot of people jump too soon and they're like, hey, we just wanna show people around in our product and that will help them. But no, they're really just there for that main reason. And so we need to craft that journey that's bowling alley approach uh, to really help them strike out at the end of the day, um, because that's going to make them more successful and them more likely to become a paying customer. So um, there's a ton of other like challenges uh, you could go through, like pricing. That's a big one as far as like changing that up. And I've seen a lot of sales like companies get stuck on that because they don't realize mm. being product led means uh, you do have to reevaluate some of these things if you were previously hiding your pricing. Because how is someone self serve? Gonna just like, okay, fill in your credit card information. There's no price. How scary would that be like <laughs> on a monthly basis for the rest of your life? I put my credit card what? in. What is this charge here? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> 20 grand? My goodness. Yeah, that would be like- I'm gonna get, definitely get some points. <laughs> yeah. um, you've talked a lot. Of, this is now like the second time you talk about pricing and why it's like such a key point of it. Can we go a little bit deeper on- how to effectively think about pricing within product-led growth other than just showing the price, but how do you capture the right value? Yeah. And so this is why I had to go back to the research phase again and again. For this <laughs> because it was so important. And like in the book, I called it like, it's really like this arranged marriage uh, when you're going through from like a sales-led to a product-led way, because you got to figure out like, you know, we're trying to like mix these two different entities together and figure out like what actually will work best for them. Like if you over-optimize on pricing and make everything in your freemium model, like it's paywall, 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 pricing gets like the, all the, the joy, it's not going to work for the customer acquisition model. So it's like, you have to have this balance between your customer acquisition model and your pricing model. And so why that's important is like when you're thinking about how do we build a very like compelling customer acquisition model? Well, you might just decide, let's give away like the majority of our product for free, for example. Well, your customer acquisition model will like, hopefully, uh, because so many people find out about that value and it's so valuable to them, uh, they're just going to share it everywhere. They're going to use it. You're going to get a ton of usage, um, but you might not really optimize for revenue. And so I'll give you an example of a company that just did that. So this was loom.com. Uh, they were one of Vidyard's uh, competitors, at least for the Chrome extension, at least. And so they just over-optimized on like the customer acquisition model for years and years and years, uh, which was great for getting a ton of people using their product day and day out, recording a ton of videos. Um, but they didn't really ever think about the, the pricing model for a long time. And then they introduced it, um, in my opinion, a bit too late. And so then they had a lot of people like really mad, like, hey, we're, we've already become so accustomed using this product and all the free features, which is amazing by the way, uh, but we want it free. We don't want any limits. And so there is a bit of like a yin and yang situation going on between the two. Um, but to get really good at it for a product that company, there's just actually one thing you need. And that is a value metric if you have one. Now, not every business has like a clear cut one. I'll give you the best one. Uh, this is like an outcome-based value metric and it's tied to the cash the business is making. Uh, that's the best one. Like if you think of Stripe, what's great mm -hmm. about it is if you make more money, Stripe makes more money. Does Stripe mm -hmm. want you to make more money? Yes, Stripe wants yep. you to make more money, of course. And so there's like businesses like that where the value that they're charging you is based on what you're making. And it's like this really symbiotic relationship. And then there's other relationships where you're thinking like, you know, HubSpot or ActiveCampaign or MailChimp. It's like, how on earth are they going to figure out like what to charge you? And imagine if you had to have a conversation with them every month, be like, hey, your um, contacts and your, your usage has gone up quite a bit. So we're actually going to be bumping up your plan by 20%. Hope you don't mind. <laughs> like that would be mm -hmm. terrible if that was right. actually the case. And so like right. you need some consistency of like pricing. And so what they've done is really just found like there's a common metric across all of these companies, whether it's CRMs or uh, you know marketing automation platforms, and that's contacts. And so they just charge you. And even with their freemium model, they decided like, okay, you're gonna get access to, in Mailchimp's case, like 2,000 subscribers for free. Once you hit that limit, 
and you get a big list, then it's going to be worth investing for you because hopefully by 2000 subscribers, you're making at least something off them uh, to justify paying, you know, $19 a month kind of deal. Mm -hmm. No, makes complete sense to tie in the value of what the company's bringing to the actual price. So that's really great. So kind of going into like the whole revenue model, you know, economics, uh, your typical company uses sales and marketing as a, as a metric for, you know, CAC, you know, cost of acquisition uh, requirement. Uh, conversations I've had been around is, do you now include engineering and product into that measure of your, when you're figuring out the, the, the UNEC economics? What, what's kind of your take on that? Oh, so for the like customer acquisition costs? Yeah, 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 specifically. Yeah, so typically you just do marketing and sales, you know, for your cost of goods sold. Now with product and engineering being part of the acquisition of the customer, do you start including that into that, uh, into that like accounting metric or do you, or do you, or do you don't like what's like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So like, it's been different in like every kind of department I've, I've asked that same question around, but one mm -hmm. of the things I've seen that's a bit more common in product like companies is like, if they, for instance, have like enterprise team as focused on like the big deals and then the smaller teams, that's just focused more so on like the SMB and it's completely self-served. Um, yes, in that case, they can definitely add that team onto it as part of that calculation for those SMB customers because um, they're not just doing the marketing for them, but they're doing the, uh, in this case, really just the self-serve upgrade experience, which is like sales. In this case, mm -hmm. it's just under the product department in some cases. So yeah, it's on a bit of like a case per case basis, but I think we're going to be seeing a lot more companies um, tackling that as like, hey, this is part of it. And there is... Uh, a growing notion of in product like companies, so it's a lot more squads. And so it's a lot less department based, which is pretty mm -hmm. like traditional for sales like companies. And there's going to be a lot more companies who are just focused on like whether it's a specific OKR and they're like defined of like teams of they have some people in sales, some people in marketing mm -hmm. and design and product. Uh, and it's going to be less department based. Oh, that's, so more of like a pod structure that goes after enterprise, you know, mid market commercial SMB type of segmentation. Yep, you got it. Interesting. Uh, in that structure, like what's kind of like the typical like makeup of the team? Like what are you seeing like ultimate team numbers or members in that pod? What do you, what do you see is most effective? Yeah, like to be effective, you need someone to be able to develop. And this doesn't have to be uh, like your best <laughs> developer for like things that will last let's say mm. this could just be a developer who's good at like whipping something up pretty quickly enough so that people can see if it'll work uh and then they can take it to the rest of the development team and be like okay like put some finesse on this right. <laughs> and, and make sure it doesn't like break anything too bad <laughs> and so like you need that developer who's like less obsessed about it. it needs to be perfect and that one who is just like okay let's test this fast yeah and go forward with that so you need that person because if you're just coming up with ideas you got someone who's in growth and someone who's like a designer and making the mock-ups and everything else uh, you're always going to be handicapped with that last part. And the other piece you definitely need is someone who's on the design end. So they're thinking about the user, they're doing a lot of the interviews and really just trying to hone in on, you know, what's missing here, what do we need to add, what do we more importantly probably need to subtract from this experience right. um, to really help people understand what they need to do, where do we need to add bumpers, where do we need to limit them. Um, so you need that person to think through all those things. And you typically will need someone either like a product manager or growth manager uh, to really be looking at that and just like holistically seeing across the board and talking to other teams, like where are those biggest obstacles for the user? How can we help them better? Um, and even if you just had those three people, uh, you'd be able to make some like pretty serious uh, dents in some of those results. And as you build it out, you can just add more and more or less of the different specialties within there. No, that's really good. Thanks for explaining all that. Uh, going back to the uh, finance model, typical company looks at LTD to CAC, a magic number. What do you think is the correct numbers to think about within a product like growth? Yeah, so like typically, like when you think of like LTV to CAC, it can be much higher for product-led companies, but it really depends on the goals. Like at the end of the day, um, 
if you're trying to aggressively grow much faster, you might take like a, a much higher CAC at the end of the day versus another company that's just like trying to optimize for profit. So I think it depends, like, especially too, if you're like VC back and bootstrap, what are your main intentions behind the business? Um, but yeah, was there any like specific area around that that you want to dig into? Um, what is like a benchmark uh, that for LTV to CAC that you see for product-led growth? Yeah, so I've seen a lot of people like focus on like a three or even a four uh, mm. out of one ratio. Okay, no, that's really good. Uh, so you, we talked a lot about your book and it, it has gotten like, it's really super helpful. If you haven't checked out, you should. What is your writing process? Like, how did you go from, hey, like this is something I'm interested in to producing a great book. And also you have, you know, productlight.com. Uh, kind of share, you know, tell us a little bit more about productlight.com and then how did you like, why like, why did you just do all these things? Like, it's just, it's very interesting to hear the how behind it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so as far as like the book, uh, it actually started with the course first and this was like for CXL and I made this course. <laughs> the funny thing, I made like the biggest like rookie course mistake ever, which is basically like trying to chew off more than you can chew for a particular topic. And it was like the complete guide. It wasn't actually the complete guide to product growth. That'd be too marketing, uh, yeah. spammy, but yeah, something like that. <laughs> and as I was going through and like building it out, I'm like, holy crap, like there's so much more here um, that I could like dig into because I just initially went into it thinking like, you know what, you're going to like really need to have like that free trial free model. That's like step one um, and figure out how to turn those users into paying customers. That's where I was focused on initially. But then I started to open up the Komodo and realized like, my goodness, like this is a complete go-to-market strategy. This is a completely new business model. Uh, it is also philosophy of like how you can grow differently. And so that's really what got me excited about it. But the funny thing about like teaching is it's the best and fastest way to learn. And so I started looking at that course experience. I was like, well, I need to go much deeper on this, What's like a better way to do that. And so, yeah, that's kind of what got me into the writing the book. And at that time, throughout that whole period, like I'd been doing a lot of like guest blog posting around um, like product like growth and onboarding. And I started to realize like there's a couple pieces I was like, wow, they're like performing like super well. Uh, one of them actually just started bringing like a bunch of clients my way. And I was like, what was it about like this particular article that like really resonated with people? What made them think differently? Like that to me is the, the indicator of like success for some sort of article. It's like, could I get you to think a bit differently? Um, if right. so, that's great. Because like my, one of my core values is like, I'm here to challenge people. And mm. so it's like, if I can do that, um, then it's success for me as well to get people to think differently. And so I found some of those articles and then I started piecing together like the outline of the book. And of course I led with the, actually the first chapter of the book was a blog post actually, uh, that was the most like powerful one. And I was like, I want to start with this stuff because I know if I package it into a book too, uh, it's going to get people to think uh, much deeper about this and start them off on a good process. And so it was actually like I went through the outline, I realized I have about like a quarter of the book written just through a lot of this blog post content. And the best part about that is it was vetted. I could immediately resonate with people and see like, was this thing a dud? Right, <laughs> like, right. I think right. the typical process of writing uh, is like, you imagine like, I don't know, let's JK Rowling, like they go away and like in their books too, they mention like, I just book a hotel and like, I go and write and write my heart out for like forever. Right. <laughs> like, it's just like, okay, but like, where's the feedback? And like, <laughs> in their case, like they're talking with other like authors and stuff. I think there's value in that too. But when it's more practical stuff about like how to actually do this and execute on the strategy and tactics, um, I think it's, there's no better way to test it than just writing it. And so I basically broke down from then every chapter was its own blog post and that worked for a bit. <laughs> and I say only for a bit, because at some point you're going to reach a cap where you're like, I need to reference all this other stuff, uh, at some point to have some cohesiveness without repeating myself a hundred times. Um, right. so yeah, it works up until a point. And by that point, uh, you just got to do the last third, which is the final hurdle. Right. So when you're writing like your blog posts, 
what's the process? Are you doing a bunch of research and then headlines outline? Do you go away to a cabin with, you know, soft jazz music? What, what is, what does that look like for you? So yeah, usually I was listening to music. Brain.fm was my best friend. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so that was helpful. But then there was also like the process for it. Yeah, there is like a good amount of research. And I think the big thing for me, since one of my skills is like synthesis, is I like to just like spend a ton of time like going through and researching a bunch of different topics. And then it's more so like once I have an opinion around something, then I can start fleshing out researching mm -hmm. uh, a bit more um, successfully because like once you start the ball rolling you get some writing down it's like okay you go down this rabbit hole you're like but there's probably more facts to like vet that uh, thinking and logic and so you just go down that rabbit hole but it's fun uh, if you like it yeah. oh no absolutely no and obviously a lot of other people resonate with uh, what you've done too uh, so speaking about other people you've have a product-led growth community uh, tons of value that happens there every day uh, Tell us more about why you started that community and a little bit more about what you got going on. Yeah, absolutely. So the product-led community uh, was really like founded because whenever in the previous my life of like these other B2B SaaS companies and launching these premium products, what I was always like bumping into was I didn't know better. And I was just making a lot of these guesses and assumptions based on, you know what, this sounds good. And, you know, it should work, let's test it. And a lot of times, like sometimes it would work, but more often than not, it'd just be like, that's a dud. That was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, back to the drawing board. Just because I wrote a book doesn't mean I'm smart. <laughs> so then there's like a lot of like a bad track record. And I think that's like maybe actually why people can resonate more with the book because it's like, I try to be humble around like, I make a ton of mistakes too kind of thing. Um, but yeah, the community was built because it's like, you were all going through this trying to figure out like, how do you build this uh, modern go-to-market strategy for product-led businesses? And so, um, the main thing that I think is valuable for this, if you are going down this path, is just ask a question. And it's like, that's my favorite channel. I go through it every day. And you can just get great feedback on whether it's a specific even tool you want to introduce, or it's also just a different strategy or tactic you want to test out. So that's why it was created. And I hope it continues to this day to, to continue to grow as quickly as it is, uh, because there's a ton of people in it every day engaging. No, absolutely. And I did ask a question and I was, Hey, if you could ask Wes a question, what would it be? And so this is, uh, the one I got, uh, so the question is you have a really interesting, uh, planning system on your every day and week. Can you tell us a little bit more about your weekly planner and how do you approach every day and every week? Yeah, so I do actually am obsessed with this. I built my own daily planner. <laughs> what? Yeah. All right, so, tell us more about that. For sure. It's actually like pretty straightforward as far as like the flow of it, but I've been doing the same system for uh, years now. And that's why I was like, I'm just writing the same thing on these notebooks of like my highlights, all these other little things. I'm like, why don't I just like make a book for this? It's actually not hard uh, to self-publish some of these things. So yeah, the flow of it basically at the beginning of the week before you start um, and even up until that, I have a brain dump and which is basically just like, as you go through the week, like just write down on this one page, like what do you have coming up? What are the big priorities? Uh, and usually it's like stuff that could be important that you might have actually attempted to do this week just to like get it off your mind, but it's, it's not important, not urgent, or it could be important, but not urgent. And mm -hmm. so I just start there. And then the next process is just like every Sunday for me, at least you can do it on Friday if you don't want to work on the weekend, but just go through and identify um, what are those top three priorities. And so it's basically just like identify those rocks, everything else will find a place. But mm -hmm. as long as you focus on those three main outcomes, um, that usually takes like the longest piece of time because you really got to think about it. Like, okay, there's tons of stuff. And usually uh, I'm guilty of this. We'll just go ahead and like execute, 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 um, but lose focus on like what is actually important here. And mm -hmm. so that helps uh, really create that forcing function. And then the other part, this one's fun 
is every day you have to find a highlight. So ahead of time, and this is great because like, especially during like the pandemic and stuff, um, sometimes you really got to think about it. <laughs> like, right. what could this be that's like really fun and new versus just like working in your office, uh, which is my go-to thing to do. And so it's like, well, maybe it's just like booking a time with a friend. Maybe it's doing something else, cooking a special meal. So it doesn't matter. But what I found is that by having something every day, is you just look forward to things more. You're always like more of an excited person. You're just like, oh, I got something to look forward to. Um, so that's huge. And then the other thing is just like listing out all the other main outcomes and kind of scoring it. So like if it's zero, it's like it has to get done. If it's one, it's like, it's not really that urgent. Mm -hmm. And then I just do that same thing kind of every day. Um, once I'm done that weekly plan, it's like top three outcomes for the day. What are the quick wins below that stuff? That's like, if it gets done, great. If not, that's okay. You can push it to the next day. And then the highlights, I try and go through and add more as the day goes on. So you're always thinking like, what is great about today? And then the other thing is the, what did you learn about that day? And then I recap with questions. What are the questions I still have about something I'm working on? And why that's important to ask yourself that is because there's often always going to be questions where you're like, I don't really know this. And it can't just be something like, oh, I could just Google that. Like, no, <laughs> I'm talking about like bigger <laughs> your business or even your personal life where you're just like, you know, let me munch on that. And I find it's important to like review those questions. Um, but it's also good to just give your subconscious like something to think about. And the act of writing it down helps you accelerate that, in my opinion. Love it. Well, we'll definitely include a, uh, a link for people to get that planner uh, so they can check it out. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Wes, this has been a very fantastic conversation. Uh, last question is, what is a message you want to leave with the listeners? Yeah, so I think if we were to sum up um, this whole product-led growth concept and just leave you with like the secret behind it, um, it's one sentence. Your user's success will eventually become your success. To truly make this work, I, that's what I believe. Uh, you can't make these models work unless you truly understand how you can make your users successful. Um, because when they do, they will reward you back with their loyal uh, payments. <laughs> <laughs> Wes, thank you so much. This has been a really great conversation. No worries. Thanks for having me.